Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. At Redeemer, we are committed to connecting people to God's transforming love. And I hope this podcast is just one more way that you connect to God's presence this week. We have kicked off this new year with a series called 2020. Where is your focus? In this six-part series, we explored areas of our lives that need a little bit of refocusing in order to live fully into what God has called us to. So here is the conclusion of the series from Pastor Adam Barnett. Hey, good morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 today, so go there on your phone or in your uh, paper Bible. We still carry those sometimes. And uh, if the Bible is new to you, I want to make sure you can find this quickly and easily. There's a red Bible under the seat that you're sitting in or the seat in front of you. And in the red Bibles, Philippians 2 is page 1827. The passage in your Bibles might be titled, Imitating Christ's Humility. Imitating Christ's Humility. So I have a synonymous title for this sermon today. Please write this down. Get your pen and your talk notes ready and write this down. This is, I know, really mind-blowing. This is really going to shock you, but here comes this t- the title of this sermon. God cares how I treat others. God cares how I treat others. In the year 165, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, and I feel like I need to say his name as you hear it in the gladiator, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, 165, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. And some medical historians believe that up to a third, maybe a quarter to a third of all of the population of the Roman Empire perished. In the 15-year duration of this epidemic, it's possible that 60 to 70 million people died, including Marcus Aurelius. That's an average of 10,000-plus deaths per day. Now, at this time, this was very early in the Christian movement, right? The Christian message had permeated from village to village, city to city, and I know you're wondering, how did the Christians respond? to this epidemic, new in their faith, new in their belief system, how would they respond to such a thing happening amongst them? In his book, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark shares the testimony of Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria who wrote about this epidemic. He writes, at the first onset of disease, the pagans pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, and treating the unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread of the fatal disease. The Christians behaved in an opposite way. He writes, many of our brothers and sisters showed unbounded love and loyalty, not running from the sick, but toward them, unafraid of danger. They took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in the name of Jesus Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease drawing on themselves the sickness of others. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died. This is the response 
within the early Christian movement to this epidemic that started in the year 165. As Christ followers, God cares how I treat others. God cares how you treat other people. And these second century Christians are a fine example. They put Philippians chapter two in practice. And this is Paul's encouragement for you and me today for all of our relationships. Look with me at verse one. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So we learn here that our oneness, this collective oneness that we feel within the body of Christ is the result of being encouraged by these three things. One, comfort from his love. So through one another, we experience this strong upholding support within our Christian community. Number two, fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The Greek word here can be translated as participation. So I don't just know about the Holy Spirit or hear teaching on the Spirit, but I am participating with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this church. And then tenderness and compassion. So our feelings toward one another carry great depth and sensitivity. If we claim to have this oneness in Jesus Christ as a church, then practical responses and applications are also mentioned in this passage. They are, we are like-minded, we have the same love, and we are one in spirit and one in purpose. And I know what you're thinking, Adam, I believe the Bible is true, I love the writing of Paul, but this is impossible. I cannot be like-minded with a Democrat, I cannot be like-minded with a Republican, I cannot be one in spirit with a Texas fan or a cowboy. We just have our differences, but Paul is not suggesting uniformity of belief here. He's not talking about your worldview. He's not talking about doctrine. He's talking about how do you treat people. He's just talking about relationships. Is there harmony in our relationships? Is there mutual concern for one another? Is there a sincere love shared here? This is what Paul is suggesting. Verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Ouch. Is anyone in the room selfish today? It's just the sermons for just seven of us. Thank you for your honesty. The rest of y'all are in denial. Just raise your hand halfway up if you would admit that some mornings you wake up and all you're thinking is, how can I best serve myself today? Can you relate? No one, and I would bet you this, not one person has your back as well as you do. I mean, you got your back. We don't wake up in the morning, Lord, how can I serve others sacrificially? Instead, Lord, thank you for all my needs that I have and that if you don't meet them, I'm gonna try as hard as I can to meet them myself, right? I'm gonna take care of me. Have you seen the movie Anchorman? I'm not promoting the contents of that movie. Please don't email me but there is a famous quote from Ron Burgundy who said, I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> what the Apostle Paul is saying to us here is very opposite. His message is more like, 
I know exactly how to put this. You're the big deal, not me. You are. You are the big deal, not me. So we're going to put this into practice here this morning. If you look to your neighbor, and I'd like you to say, you are the big deal, not me. Go ahead. I'd like to do it again, and I want to hear more. I want to hear it like you mean it. Put some emphasis on it. You are the big deal, not me. Tell them. Tell them. You're the big deal today, not me. Paul is serving our church All of us, a slice of humble pie with Philippians chapter two, verse three. Think about this. The fact that all of us here are made in the image of God is reason enough to treat everyone as your equal. Every single person you'll ever lay eyes on today and tomorrow and the rest of your life, everybody is equal to you. That's the great common denominator. We are all made equal in the eyes of God because we're made in God's image, but we're called by Paul here even further, value other people above yourself. And I was thinking this week about non-Christians. If you know someone who vocally expresses disagreement with Christianity, distaste with Christ or the church, those people ought to be elevated in your life as well as more important than you, and why? There are a few things that you have that they don't. Redemption through Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, the help and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, God's principles on the pages of the Bible, the support of the local church. These are things that you all have and enjoy because you profess Christ as your Lord. For those out there who don't, elevate them. Consider them before you consider yourself. Meet their needs before meeting your own, and maybe, maybe they'll see Jesus in you and through you. Maybe your humility, maybe your deep concern that you have for these people will be your evangelism. For my brothers and sisters who don't like to open their mouth and talk about Jesus, hopefully there's at least some actions that people will see Christ in you. Abraham Maslow, I really love his research. He's one of the great thinkers of the 20th century. He brought this radical shift in psychology. In his research, he studied people who were vitally alive and fully functioning. I love that. So is he talking about you? Or are you kind of partially functioning today? That's between you and the Lord. Vitally alive and fully functioning, he studied people who were radiant and genuinely happy. That is his target of his research and his conclusion of the secret of this life of vitality, of meaning, of joy and happiness. He says, without exception, I found that every person who was sincerely happy through his research, radiant alive, radiantly alive, was living for the purpose and the cause of others. Waking up in the morning and thinking, how can I serve others today instead of how can I serve myself? Interesting, isn't it, that, that prioritizing and valuing other people above ourselves can actually result in a life with great internal peace and blessing. Verse 4, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest 
of others. What does this mean? Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, Romans 12. Be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, Ephesians 4. Love one another with brotherly affection. Listen to this, I love this. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Oh, what would the world look like if we did that? What would the church look like? What could our marriages look like if we outdid one another in showing honor? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5. Whatever you wish that others could do to you, do also to them, Matthew 7. This is what it looks like to not look out for your own interests, but the interest of others. As I was preparing this week, Uh, I was reminded of a book that I read last year by Caroline Westerhoff, A Song for the Baptized. It's not about Philippians 2, but there's a quote from her book that I remembered uh, just, it's so beautiful. It paints this picture. It summarizes verse 4 in particular beautifully of looking out for one another's interests. She writes, we are not meant to simply bear the burdens and tragedies of others when they come our way. Now, let me just say this. This church is very unique in the way that we bear one another's burdens and tragedies. I'm telling you, it's amazing. Our staff, our congregational care team, Joe, Amy, Jenny, all of these people who gather together with your needs in mind, our prayer team, like I'm telling you, this church does a beautiful job of caring for one another in our burdens, in our tragedies. But listen what Caroline says here. The disciple of Jesus is also to deliberately choose what could be avoided. Deliberately choose what could be avoided without considering the cost, without worrying about who gets the credit in order to serve the other person. The Christian is to put himself or herself Without reservation, in in the service of God and neighbor, it is engaging in the world's suffering because we can do nothing less. It's being vulnerable, even to those who will turn against us. To deny self, she writes, this grasping, self-centered ego is to liberate the true self, the wondrous one created in the image of God and baptized into the likeness of Jesus. Deliberately choosing what could be avoided. Not just receiving one another when emergencies occur or in moments of tragedy or sharing burdens, but looking, waking up in the morning, looking for ways to serve the other person and promote their interest over our own. Second century Christians who were still figuring their faith out, walking toward the sick, unafraid of the cost, fully aware by the thousands and thousands dying around them that this too could take their life. Instead of running the opposite direction, deliberately choosing what could be avoided. I love that quote from her book, And I think from her and especially Paul, Philippians 2, we can glean that our love for others should not just be reactive. Yes, things are going to happen around us, and we do react on behalf of one another. But beyond that, 
We should also be proactive, purposely looking to sacrifice for other people. This is a very countercultural text, a very countercultural sermon. Go put someone else's needs before your own. <gasps> but I like to take care of myself first. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, in your relationships, how you interact with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Some translations say the same attitude as Christ Jesus. The Greek verb here for mindset, phroneo, implies this, I think or I direct the mind to, whatever it is. I think and I direct my mind to do this. To be fair, we all have moments where we completely lose our mind, right? Anybody had one of those in the last 24 hours? Some of y'all are still looking for yours, and you just got a brother, sister in the row next to you. I'm sure they're willing to help you find it. One, one man said, I'm losing my mind, but as long as I keep the part that tells me when it's time to pee, I'll be okay. <laughs> and another person said, I've lost my mind. If you see it approach with great caution, it seems quite unstable. <laughs> we all lose our mind. You know, we flip out. We don't act the way that we know we should. We panic. We're frustrated or confused or whatever, but when it comes to the way we think, absolutely God's Spirit helps us. Absolutely. Submit every thought unto the Lord. But also we see from the text that God entrusts us to direct our thinking. You're not a puppet. God's not pulling strings in the air, shifting through files of thoughts in your brain right now. He entrusts you to direct your thinking. Here's from Scripture. Set your minds on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Colossians 3. You're created to be like God, to be made new in the attitude of your mind. Ephesians 4. In my mind, I'm a slave to God's law. Romans 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and not your own thinking. Proverbs 3. Whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, Philippians 4, and love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, Matthew 22. Paul is insisting here, within our relationships with one another, direct your mind, direct your thoughts, direct your mind to reflect Jesus. Or remember it this way, direct to reflect. Direct my mind to reflect my God. Direct and reflect. Eugene Peterson, I love his translation of Philippians chapter two. Let me read it for you. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Jesus, do I have anybody's attention? If you have gotten anything at all out of following Jesus, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in community of the Spirit means anything to you, listen, if you have a heart, <laughs> if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand to the other. So the takeaway from this text 
the application, the homework as I see it, or what I'm going to work on in my own life this week. Recognize the destructive path of selfishness. Really do a scan of my heart and my motives. Do I see selfishness and then acknowledge the destructive path of that selfishness? Selfishness can destroy a marriage. It can cause pain to a family. It can tear apart and divide a church. It can harden a heart. And it can really tear apart any relationship. None of us are safe or exempt from the consequences of selfishness. So as you meditate on this text, as you learn from the example of Jesus Christ, we begin more and more to put his relational style into practice. We see how he interacted. What are his interpersonal relationships? And we model his example. Or as I've heard throughout the years and learned as I served as a counselor at the great camp Canacuck, God first, others second, and myself third. Boy, that's simple, but it's easier said than done. God, I want to put you first, and I want to put the other person second, and I want to think about myself third. There's a book, The Fine Art of Friendship. Ted Ingstrom tells a story of a married couple, and this man who happened to be paralyzed, wrote a letter to his unborn child. This letter more than adequately illustrates the selfless love that we're called to demonstrate in Philippians chapter two, and I'd like to read it to you to close. This gentleman writes, your mother is very special. Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner when it entails what it does for us. You see, I'm paralyzed. So your mother has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, open the garage, put me in the car, take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me up in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back into the car and drive to the restaurant. Then it starts all over again. She gets me out of the car, unfolds my wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant, and then takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit down to have dinner and she feeds me throughout the entire meal. When it is over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out to the car again, and reverses the same routine. And when it's all over, finished, with real warmth, she says, honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner tonight. I never know quite what to say. Let's pray. Lord, you've made us for deep, satisfying relationships because you are a relational God. It is the very essence of who you are. Relationship is at your core. So help us to bring joy into every context through humble attitudes and actions of love. Forgive me, Lord, forgive us 
the times that we are self-centered, looking out only for ourselves. And we ask that you would enable us to think first of you and your kingdom interests and others second and ourselves third. And help us to direct our minds in a way that glorifies you. It is through Christ, our humble King, that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.